morning, church. Pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, to the book of Ephesians. If you haven't been with us, we've been in this series that we've entitled, Who Am I? Asking this fundamental, foundational question about our very existence. What defines me? How do I identify myself? And, and, and we've come to realize that there's a lot of opinions about how we are to go about defining and identifying ourselves. The world tells us that there are four ways that we can identify ourselves. First of all, by our status, what we do for a job, what we're doing for a living, what uh, our kind of place in life is. Still others say that it is to uh, define ourselves by the stuff that we have, our possessions, the things that we've acquired. That's what tells the world who we are. Still others say that it's our skin color, it's our ethnicity, it's where maybe we find our, our, our homeland. That, that is how we identify ourselves or say who we are. Still others, and this is a, a newer phenomenon, it's through our sexual orientation, who I'm attracted to, what inclinations I may have. And, and all of these, the Bible says, are, are faulty ways at identifying who you really are. The Bible uses two identifiers, and it's an either-or proposition. The first way you can identify yourself or define yourself is to define or identify yourself around you. You are living life, and you are the captain of your vessel. You are the one who determines what you do, when you do it, how you do it, uh, and you make that decision based on what pleases you, what, what fills you, what, what, what moves you from point A to point B. You are, in many ways, the son of the universe. That is, you are that which all that your life orbits around. The Bible says that we learn that from our forefather, Adam. And he uses this phrase in the Bible over and over again, you're in Adam, you're in Adam. That is, you identify yourself with the thinking that Adam did. Adam had a relationship with God. Adam had everything he could ask for or imagine in the Garden of Eden. But at the first opportunity that Adam had, Adam made a decision to get rid of God in his life and to determine that he was the God of his universe. And that whatever he longed for, whatever he desired, that was what he was going to pursue. The Bible says that when we hold to this position, we find ourselves in a place of arrogance and ignorance. We find ourselves in a place of darkened understanding. We are told that this path of living for self and centering the world around ourselves will lead in the end to destruction. So then it creates another alternative. And the other alternative is instead of looking to center our lives and identifying ourselves with ourselves, we say we are small, we are finite, we are frail, and we are in need of someone else. And so we center our life on Christ. Paul's going to tell us 25 times in this uh, passage of uh, the book of Ephesians, he's going to tell us that we are in Christ. That's the opposite of being in yourself. Being in Adam is to be in Christ. That is to say, I am not the son of the universe. I am not the center of my existence. God is, Christ is, and so everything I say, everything I do, everything I long for in this world must be funneled through and founded upon God's word and the truth that we find in Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
And so Paul writes this letter to a group of individuals who have cast off the old way of thinking, that is the world revolved around them and their pleasures and their desires, and now to a group of people that have given that up and now have grabbed a hold of that Jesus Christ is whom we should center our lives upon. And because we've put our lives in Christ's hands, because we've allowed Christ to redeem us and, and, and allowed Christ to uh, position us now in a place we could never get on our own, because of the privileges that come by bowing the knee to Christ's saviorship and lordship in our lives, we now live differently. But what's gonna inevitably happen as we read this book of Ephesians is we're gonna see that there's this battle that's going on. Those of us who are in Christ will have this inclination, will have this desire, there will be this temptation to stop living for Christ, stop living the new way we have taught in Christ, as we learned last week, that we've learned from Christ. He's taught us the truth. He's modeling for us what a relationship with our Heavenly Father looks like. And we are tempted to go back to the old way. We are tempted because it sure looks like fun to be in charge, to be your own boss, to set your own agenda. That's a whole lot more fun than placing yourself in the service of the master. And so Paul says you need to be careful. And at the end of last week's message and last week's passage, we were told we've got to put off the old things and put on the new. The way we do it, Paul says, notice in verse 23 of chapter 4, we do so by this renewing of our minds. That is, we renew the way we think. And what Paul's going to tell us is, is that that renewal is going to tell us we were made for more. We were made for more. So let's look at what he says in the passage, and then we'll dig into more of this renewing of our mind and how it will lead us to live, to talk, to think differently as a result of the change that has taken place in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such it is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father God, we ask now, as we've read your word, as we've sung your word to one another and praise to you, as we've lifted up prayers, we recognize and know we can't do this without you. So we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would not give the devil a foothold, and we would not grieve the Holy Spirit. But Lord, through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we might be able to accomplish and be what you've called us to be. 
Lord, I pray that you would use these prohibitions, these callings to rid ourselves, not as uh, batons of guilt, but, but as things that move us to be even more in your love and in your grace. I pray, Lord, that we would renew our minds so that we can see these things become realities in our life for our good and for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at this, this passage under the heading, you and I were made for more. We were made for more, and I want to start by hearkening back to an illustration that I used a couple weeks ago. I told you the story of when I was a little kid that my grandparents took me to the Shriners Circus in the city of Chicago. It was a pretty big deal. I'd never been to the circus before, and all the sights and sounds, even as we were arriving in the parking lot, uh, told me that something special special was in the air. And I remember as we parked, all of the, uh, the trucks and the trailers for the circus were in the parking lot. Uh, all of the animals were staged ready for the big show that they were going to be a part of. And the one thing that caught my eye uh, were the elephants. And there were four or five elephants, if I remember. Big beasts, of course, I'd never been that close to an elephant before, and, and as I was walking, all they were behind was just a rope that kept you away from them. But I looked, and, and I was amazed when I saw that the only thing that was holding them in their place was a tiny rope around their foot. And I remember as a young boy, maybe seven or eight years of age, I grabbed at my grandfather and I said, how can a beast so big be held by a rope. It didn't make any sense to me. And my grandfather said at some point, Tim, that elephant was told that that rope was stronger than it was. At some point, probably early on, as a baby elephant, that elephant had been uh, told and had been conditioned to think that that rope was way stronger than it really was. And so as it got older, it began to continue to believe that lie that that rope, which was small in, in, in comparison to the grandness of an elephant, the strength of an elephant, that that rope had no power over it. You see, it had believed something it had been told. I want to speak as one elephant to a room of elephants this morning. And I want to do so because at some point in our lives, we were told that our identity, the definition of who we are, was defined by the things that hold us back, not the things that we've been made to be. For many of us, we find ourselves held back by a rope, a measly old rope that is holding an individual who in Christ has been blessed with every spiritual blessing under heaven. Who in Christ uh, is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask for or imagine through us. That in Christ we have the power that raised Christ from the dead. And yet, the world and the devil tempts us to be held by these ropes in bondage believing that we don't have the power, we don't have the strength to break through to break free. And some of us very early on were told things about ourselves, were told things about our abilities, were told things about our purpose in this world that have consigned us, though incredibly powerful because of Christ, 
confined us to be held by a measly old rope. Paul tells the church, you were made for more than this. And Paul tells the church that how it's going to happen is in verse 23. You've got to renew your mind. You see, the rope isn't the elephant's problem. His thinking is. His thinking is. And some of you think the problem you have is your sin. The sin's the rope. The sin's the measly, tattered old rope that has you thinking you can't go on. It isn't the sin that's the problem, it's your thinking. You and I are not thinking right. And the reason why is we're not allowing the renewal of our mind to take place. In verse 23 of last week, we saw that this begins by being renewed in the spirit of our minds. It is what allows us to put off the old sins and to put on the new righteousness that Christ brings and produces in our lives. Now, how do we renew our minds? How do we get ourselves to start thinking the right way? Well, first of all, the renewal of the mind, that renewed there is in present tense form in the original Greek. And what that means is it's continually needing to happen. It's not like you renewed your mind at some point. The elephant didn't say at one point, uh, I am going to believe that this rope is going to keep me there. No, he perpetually thought it. Every time he would pull and feel the snug of that rope against his leg, he was conditioning and renewing his mind to think the rope was stronger than I was. And so what we need to recognize is we need to be renewing this on a continual basis. Now, the question is, how do we do it? Some of you are sitting there writing down on your sheet of paper, okay, I gotta continually renew my mind, and you're gonna white knuckle this thing. I'm going to hell or high water. I'm going to renew my mind. The problem is you can't do it on your own. It is said and articulated in in our passage in that original Greek word there, renewed, in verse 23, that it is found what we call in passive voice. What passive voice means is it's not something you do. It is something that is done outside of you. And so to renew our minds means we've got to allow Christ into our lives. We've got to say, Christ, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for you. And as I do, I'm going to allow your word to transform my thinking. I'm going to allow your word, I'm going to saturate my, myself in your word, and as I position myself under the uh, leadership and, and, and commandship, if you will, of your word, my thinking is going to change. Your sin, your, your pr- 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 present predicament isn't the problem. Our thinking is. And God says, I want to renew your mind. And I want to do so on a continual basis because I want you to know you were made for more than just this. You were made for more. And now he's going to say, and he's going to list these things of what we're made more for. And I wish I could spend uh, entire messages on all of these things, but, but I can't. And so let's center these things on three thoughts this morning. Three things that were made for more in our daily practical life. Number one, your and my words were made for more. Our words were made for more. We were made for more when we talk. Paul lists these put-ons and put-offs, and he makes a good checklist for us who profess Christ. 
Are we characterized by the things we are supposed to put on, or are we characterized by the things that we should have already been putting off? And he begins by speaking about the words we use, the the mouths that we have. And he addresses two things. Notice in verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away away falsehood, let us speak the truth with our neighbor. So he's going to talk about lying, and then he's going to talk about one other aspect of our mouths, and he says this, let no corrupting talk, verse 29, come out of your mouths, but only what is good for the building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we've got a problem with our mouth. For many of you, uh, none of us would ever leave our house without making sure our breath smells good. We like that, first of all, because we can taste it or smell it ourselves, and, and we know what morning breath smells like. But even more than that, we know it's offensive for us to have bad breath and to share that bad breath with other people, amen? There's nothing worse than having a conversation, and I apologize if I've ever done this to you unknowingly, to have a conversation with someone who has bad breath. You feel it with every word. You smell it. You're you're a part of it. You can't get uh, around it. Well, listen, what Paul is saying is uh, the issue of halitosis, which is bad breath, uh, is, is a spiritual thing. We can have the most pristine breath because we brush, we floss, we use mouthwash, we, we, we eat and suck on mints, we chew gum. We take care of that from a physicality standpoint. But spiritually, could it be that some of us are not walking out into this world with the fresh breath of the words in the mouth that God's given us? And so he begins by, first of all, he says, we gotta put off lying. We gotta put off falsehood. And Paul says that what we need to hear in the church is just because we're followers of Jesus Christ doesn't mean we're not liars. That we're not liars. Listen, lying is a part of the human existence. In the book, The Day That America Told the Truth, it declares these things about our telling of lies. Number number one, 91% of us lie on a regular basis. By the age of two or three, 90% of children have learned the concept of lying. Based on studies that have been done, it's estimated 60% of adults cannot have a 10-minute conversation without at least lying once. And within those first 10 minutes, three lies have already been told. Why do we lie? We lie to save face. We, we lie to shift blame. We lie to avoid confrontation. We lie to get our way. We lie to be nice. We lie to make ourselves feel better. On average, on average, men and women lie four times a day. That equates to almost 1,500 lies a year. Now, let's dig into this a little deeper. Let's see this. So 1,500 lies a year. Now, now, guys, we lie more than women do. Women all say amen. Okay? All right? I don't know why we lie more, but, but we do. Okay? Probably because we're answering the questions of the ladies around us, and we don't know how to answer, right? I just got myself into trouble. 
Now, the number one lie that we tell, the number one lie that we tell by both genders is this. Nothing's wrong, I'm fine. Nothing's wrong, I'm fine. The most common lie told by both genders. Let's move on. In this issue of lying, we see, help me out, next one, thank you. We lie for a lot of reasons. We lie to make ourselves look good, to get out of trouble, to avoid hurting someone's feelings. 80% of women say they sometimes tell these harmless white lies to avoid hurting a, a person's feelings. Well, how would they feel if they knew you were lying to them? Okay, this is part of the problem. Let's move on. We see the next thing. Kids, we struggle with lying. Nine out of 10 middle schoolers that were uh, surveyed admitted to regularly cheating on their homework. That is lying about the work that they've done. We see uh, lying is costly. 15 million, it's hard to read, but 15 million Americans are victims to someone lying that they're you called identity theft. And it costs us about $50 billion in damages a year. Sadly, we lie, and in our lying, we're cheating. We're cheating on our spouse. 57% of men admit to infidelity in the past or in their present relationship, and you would think that ladies would be better, 54%. And so we're constantly lying, and we're lying through our words. We're lying through our deeds. Now, on that last slide, it said 50% of lies are never detected. So we're really, really good at this. And the way that we do it is we cover one lie with another lie. And we go about lying and lying. Sometimes we lie so much that we don't remember the truth from the lie that we told. We've got a problem with lying. Now, he stops there, and we'll, we'll come back to it here in a moment, but then he brings up another issue of our mouths and the things that we need to put off, and he talks about corrupting talk. He says, let uh, no corrupting uh, talk or unwholesome talk come from your mouth. Other translations may say filthy talk. The reason why these words all work is because the Greek word there is a word that speaks of something that which is rotten, corrupt, disgusting, rank, foul, putrid, worthless. So this corrupting speech generally means conversations that are filthy, suggestive, uh, they are off-putting because they're off-color, they're filled with profanity, uh, they're filled with uh, innuendos. In the wider sense of the term, uh, this term can speak of conversation that is frivolous, empty, idle, or worthless. Paul's going to deal with swearing in verse 4 of chapter 5 when he says, let no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking or swearing which is out of place, but instead there should be thanksgiving. We'll get to that next week. And so here's the problem. The problem is we who have put on Christ, we who have been given new life in Christ, Jesus says to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul says, listen, your words as Christ followers were made for more. You can't tell lies, even though you want to. You can't use words that are, are corrupting. You can't use profanity. And the reason why is your words were made for more. And some of us, we've, we've got to look at this in our lives. We've got to look at the words we're sharing and look back and say, how many lies did I share this week and why did I do so? 
How much profanity did I use this week? How much profanity did I allow myself to be around in, in the stuff that I chose to watch and, and listen to? Am I centering myself on God and His Word? Am I putting on this truth of God and His Word or the deceitful desires that are lying to us and telling us this is who we are? Our words, the reason why our words are so important is the Bible makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear that your words, your mouth, is a window into your soul. Jesus told his followers, out of the overflow of the heart, the hands move. No. Out of overflow of the heart, the feet operate. Nope. Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. So if you want to know what's going on inside, you can say all you want about your profession in Christ, but just let your words do the talking. And here's what what Paul gets at. Notice he says we've got to put on truth. We've got to speak the truth with our neighbors because we are uh, members of one another. And then later he says that we need to uh, speak words only that are good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear it. Listen, I don't want to beat you up if you're struggling with cursing, if you're struggling with lying and saying you're a terrible person. Listen, we are all sinners in need of grace. But here is why Paul singles this out. Because he says this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then your number one desire should be to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. We are to tell people about Christ. Our words, as he says in verse 4 of chapter 5, that our words are to be filled with thanksgiving. Why? Because we were sinners saved by grace. And what good is it for us to share the gospel one second and then lie to the person next to us another? So if we're known to be a liar, when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, what will that person know is true? Is what you told me about Jesus true? Or you tell me about the sales report that you didn't have ready, which I found out to be a lie. Which one's truth and which one's a lie? If your words are filled with profanity and slander and things that are unbecoming, then how can we talk about the purity and righteousness and goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ? The Bible says we cannot speak, if you will, out of both sides of our mouths. We can't have, uh, if our mouths are speaking out salt water, it can't be coming from a fresh water well. And so if these things are coming up, they are indicators that we've not put off the old and put on the new. One of the things that I've done with regards to speaking the truth and, and especially not falling into profanity is I've taught my three boys that they can observe what I'm doing, and I've given them this allowance. You can say whatever words I say. You can use your mouth as I use my mouth, because I know they're going to. Children uh, see what their parents do, and they do it. We model for them. And one of the reasons why I say this, number one, what right do I have to punish them? Because now it's a do as I say, not as I do. And one of the things that it's helped me to do is to remember that there's nothing more unbecoming than to hear your child lie, your child swear, your child to use obscene language. It comes across very off-putting, right? 
That which we don't think about when we do it, we surely don't like it when we see our children doing it. So here I want to up the ante for you. What does it mean to renew your mind with regards to your words? Ask this question. Would Jesus use those words? Would Jesus tell that joke? Would Jesus use a lie? My goodness, if Jesus is a liar, then we should be pitied amongst all people because he has sold us a bill of goods. Well, you say, well, well of course he didn't lie. He's, he's Jesus. But what if he lied about a couple things? Then we wouldn't know what is true and what is false. And if we know that we need to hear a pure salvation message, we need to hear of the purity of our Savior in heaven, how much more is it important? Because the Bible says, how will they know unless they have heard? unless someone goes and shares with them. But how can we share if our words are so out of place? Paul says our words were made for more. God wants to grace your words so that your words might be of great benefit to all who hear it. Number two, number two, our work was made for more. Our work was made for more. Verse 28, He goes on and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, the first word there, the steal, do not steal, is a present tense word. It speaks of ongoing and continually practice. And the context here is two things we need to know about the thief. They're too lazy to work and too selfish to share. They are a taker, not a giver. So Paul says, you gotta put this off. You gotta gotta quit doing this. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you have a responsibility, you are to do it. And any, listen, any type of putting off of that responsibility is theft. Uh, To have someone do your homework in class is thievery. You have stolen from someone and you've taken it as yours. In the workplace, we can steal a time, we can steal a things from our uh, employer. We can do this with all manner of things. We, by nature, are people who are given more to stealing than to sharing. And Paul says that the people of God must be a sharing people, not a stealing people. And so this idea of stealing comes to the idea that at the very heart of it, and this is what Paul wants us to do, what thinking causes you to steal? And at the very thought that brings you to stealing is this. God is not good enough to provide for me. God is not great enough, strong enough to take care of me. Therefore, I must take my life into my own hands and get what God will not give me on my own. That is a thinking of rebellion. That is an unfaithful thinking about the God who says he has given us everything we need under heaven. And so what we do is we put on self instead of Christ, and we say, God's not going to provide it for me, so i got to go get it myself. i got to go grab a hold of it for myself. And it is a person who is untrusting that God will provide, thinking, I've got to do this to survive. And so we steal. 
he says also that anyone who does not share is stealing. And the idea here is that you and I don't have any of this on our own. You do not have your job, you do not have your possessions, you do not have anything that you have that allows you to gain wealth and possessions on your own. They were given because God's given you abilities, God's given you strength, God's given you everything that you need. He's allowed you to be able to do it. He's gifted you with everything that is in there. And he says, I don't want you to just keep this for yourself. That would be to steal. I want you to share it. I want you to give it to others. So in your work life, in your school life, in in your area of responsibilities, are you stealing? Are you cutting corners? Or are you seeing these things as a responsibility, as a stewardship that God has given, that you give it your best, and you share that, the fruit of that, with any and all that you can, because that's what God has modeled and and shown us. Listen to me, this will change the way we approach tomorrow morning. Our work isn't for us. It is the opportunity for us to use the gifts God gives for the betterment of those around us. What, what, what Paul is saying here is our work was made for more. Yes, our words. Yes, our work. But it gets even deeper because he says in verse 31 and 32, our wounds were made for more. Our wounds He goes on and he speaks about uh, not letting bitterness and wrath and anger, verse 31, and clamor and slander. He says that's all got to be put away along with all malice. Well, why would we have that? We're followers of Jesus Christ. Why would we be filled with bitterness and not grace? Why would we have wrath and anger instead of being calm and collected? Why would we slander and, and, and share words of malice? And here's the reason why. Because people in this world will hurt us. They'll hurt us. And he doesn't, listen, he doesn't say that your hurts aren't unnecessary things or or things that don't matter. They, They do matter, but he says, I need you to allow them to matter more in your life because your wounds were made for more. So it's not good enough for us just to become angry about them and to sin in our anger. To let it fester, to not let the sun go down on our anger is to allow bitterness and resentment to overflow in our lives. And and Paul says, what Jesus is telling us is we were made for more. We were made for more. Now, there's, there's so much, and time doesn't allow, and so uh, if you're struggling with this issue of forgiveness and bitterness and resentment because of something someone has done to you, I would encourage you to go to our website. I preached a series of messages on forgiveness out of the book of Philemon, and, and it does, a, I think, a, a better job than I have time to do today to addressing the ins and outs of forgiveness, the whens and whats of forgiveness, and, and the hows of forgiveness straight from God's word from a book that was dedicated to this subject matter of how to forgive and to do it well. Now, the reason why we do this, the reason why our wounds were made for more was because we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Why? Because God in Christ Jesus forgave us. And because he forgave us, he calls us to forgive. And again, here comes the thing. Uh, In in another verse, we're going to be told we need to be imitators of God. As dearly loved children, we're to walk in love. And how do we do it? Christ is our example. 
And so when we are hurt, we've got a decision to make. Will I put on the things that the world and the devil tell me to, or will I put on Christ? Well, this is what the devil will tell you. The devil will say this. Throw it up on the screen for me. You would never dream, uh, no, that's not the right one. Let's keep moving. There we go. Self-pity weeps on the devil's shoulders, turning to Satan for comfort. His invitation is, come unto me, all you that are grieved, peeved, misused, and disgruntled, and I will spread on the sympathy, the devil says. You will find me a never-failing source of the meanest attitudes and the most selfish sort of misery. At my altar, the devil says, you may feel free to fail and fall, and there is no sign to, and fret, no sign and fret. There I will feed your soul on fears and indulge your ego with envy and jealousy, jealous, jealousy, bitterness and spite. There I will excuse you from every cross, every duty, every hardship, and permit you to yield unto temptation. Listen to me. What the devil wants you to do is to feel like a victim and to live there. Never forgiving, never thinking. And, and here's the problem with a victim mentality. A victim mentality puts you as always the victim and it, it moves us to forget that we too are victimizers. And so Paul says, listen, yes, you may be a victim. I'm not, I don't want to diminish that. But what Paul says is remember too, you victimized someone else. And who did we victimize? Jesus Christ. We offended Christ. We hurled insults at Christ. We rebelled against Christ. We put Christ on the cross. We forced Christ to die for our sins. And he forgave us. And he loves us. And he does not hold bitterness and rage and and, uh, um, all kinds of of, uh, malice against us. He forgives And those wounds on the cross that Christ experienced, that he endured, were made for more, the redemption of you and me. So how much more then can our wounds be used for redemptive purposes for those around us if we would just forgive? So how do we do it? Let me close with these two statements, allow you to think through them and discern how they may apply to your words, your work, and your wounds But when it comes to these things, number one, the devil loves to steal, so don't give him any space. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 27. Another passage would say, uh, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him an inch because he'll take a mile, one commentary said. And some of us are allowing the devil to have a foothold in our lives. And maybe we say, but that's just the way I talk. That's just the way I work, and you need to know the people I have, and I can explain why I'm stealing. Or maybe that's because I've been wronged in so many ways, I can't get beyond it. Brothers and sisters, whatever it is, do not give the devil an inch, because he will ruin, he will destroy your life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus Christ came to give life and to give it in all abundance. And so we've got to start doing some things in our life that that stop listening to the devil. And notice, here's the answer. 
The answer is the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve, verse 30, the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you don't give the devil a foothold, but you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And why? Because the Spirit is preparing you and I for greatness. The Spirit is preparing you and I for greatness, so don't push him away. And so what it is is each and every day waking up and saying, Lord, by your Spirit, renew me. By your Spirit, define me. By your Spirit, lead me. And as you lead me, as you guide me, my words are going to change. My work environment and how I look at work is going to change. The way I look at my wounds are, are going to change. And as I let you into my life and receive you by, by hanging out with the Holy Spirit, I am forced to grow. I am forced to mature. Someone better pick that up. Let me close with this, with this word here. When I was dating Amanda, and maybe you don't know this, and this might come as a shock to you, but I was the immature one in the relationship. <laughs> and one of the things that I fell in love with Amanda was her poise, her maturity. She was, she was unlike any, any young lady that I had met. And I was a little bit surprised that she would want to hang around with a goofball like me. And at times, I remember, especially now as I look back, where she was really wondering, why am I with this guy? Because when I would talk, she would say, why, why, why do you say that? Why, why do you act that way? Why, why, you know, we, we were students together in college, and she worked so hard, and I coasted, and I did whatever I had to to just get by. And she would sit there and go, why can't you just work at it? Just put the work in. And she would say this as a young lady, and it just, it would blow by me, and I, I, I didn't care about it. Well, this may be a surprise to you, but I got myself into some trouble one day, and my one phone call I got was to my girlfriend. Come and get me. Bring some money all as well. And when we left that place that will remain nameless, <laughs> I remember looking at her, and I don't, I don't think she did this, but this is what the Holy Spirit laid on my heart. This girl ain't going to hang around you if you're going to be immature. You got to grow up. If you want this relationship with her, things have to change. And I was like, I want this relationship with her. And so it meant I had to make some decisions. I had to put off this immature thinking, this immature way of living, so that I might be the person that I know she wanted me to be, that she needed me to be. Well, let's equate that to the relationship with our Father in heaven through Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. We can't hang around God by doing these things. God's going to say, you were made for more than that, and he's going to convict us, and we're going to be all together bothered because he's going to sit there and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You're, you're better than that. But as we begin the process, listen, this is why I want to say this, because I don't want you to think, I'm just not going to use bad words anymore. They're done, and I blink and mean it this time. <laughs> it ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. But if you will put yourself in relationship and closer to God and his word, that Holy Spirit will make you great.
He will make you be able to accomplish what you can't do on your own. If we will sit and, and allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives and not grieve him, he will prepare us for what we were made to be. And so center yourself on that and, and devote yourself to that. Don't try to grip this thing 10 and 2, I'm going to fix it on my own. It doesn't work. But if you say, Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me, use me, because I'm going to follow you and I'm going to watch how you do this and I'm going to model now what I see modeled in you, then and only then our words, our work, and our wounds will be made for more.